Well, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And I'll just say this, you know, uh, hopefully by now, that as far as I'm concerned, the, the best kind of preaching that should be the, the regular diet of the church is uh, expository preaching. That is, we work our way through uh, verses and chapters of books of the Bible and preach them in their proper context. And the point of the text is the point of the sermon. Um, I don't have to wonder about what kind of creative thing I'm going to come up with to tell you. We'll just look and see what's next in the Bible and say what the Bible says. However, there is an occasion uh, when I think it is appropriate to preach topically, and to, uh, that's, our, that's what we're going to do this morning. I wanna, we're going to start with 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and that will sort of launch us into this, um, this time of talking about preaching Christ crucified. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wise, destroy the wisdom of the wise, and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach, what? Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty, and the base things of the world, and the things which are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in His presence. But of Him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, He who glories, let him glory in the Lord." The thought continues in chapter 2. He says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except what? Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is God's holy and inspired word. Now, I want you to, to know this. 
uh, whether you realize it or not, we are all preaching something. Yes, I'm the one who got up this morning and put on a tie and stood behind the pulpit and have a sermon prepared from the scriptures. But all of us, and this congregation as a whole, preaches a message. See, there's a, even in my preaching and standing here behind this pulpit, there's an, a foundation, an underlying message in every sermon. There's something that's at the bottom of it all. Now, what is it? Now, there's a lot of pressure on, on a lot of preachers today to produce results. Because the church in America as a whole, attendance is on the decline. If you have a church of, of 250 or more now, you're in the top 8% in the country of all churches. The, the medium-sized church, the average church in the United States has about 60 people in attendance on Sunday morning. And that's a, that's a change from what it has been in the past. And so, in some cases, preachers feel pressured to try to do things to, to draw the crowd, to pull people in. Let's make sure our message is, is relevant, that it's up to date, that we appeal to the culture around us so that people will come. But the appeal to draw crowds can't be at the bottom of what we preach. The appeal to get people to come into our building cannot be the foundation on which we preach. But Paul is clear in the passage that we've just read, the foundation of all preaching is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It's the message of the gospel. Now, we're preaching something in the way we operate our church. You think about programs and projects and things we want to accomplish, things we want to do here. What's at the bottom of it? What's our purpose? You know, we're going to remodel this wing over here and make a nicer space for children. Why? So we can attract young families and hopefully grow our church and our congregation? I mean, that's the cool side effect if it happens, but that can't be the foundation. We're going to have vacation Bible school here in a couple of months in June. And, and we're, going to, we're going to bring kids in from, from all around and tell them, uh, tell them what the Bible says. Why are we doing that? We talk about maybe wanting to a, a, a do, do a project or start a program and do all kinds of things. We have to ask ourselves, what's at the bottom of it? And it can't be to try to build a church, establish our own kingdom, draw a crowd. But the purpose in everything that we do ought to be that we may proclaim the message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It has to be the message of the gospel. And I heard someone say recently, as a pastor that's pretty well known, but he's, he's pastoring a church of just about 40 members right now, somewhere in, in Oklahoma. And he said recently, he said, you know, if, if a family moves into my town and they're a good Christian family and they're solid, they love the Lord and they're raising their kids right. If they move into my town, they are probably not going to come to my church. He said, because they're a bigger church, they have better programs and can do more. And they know what they're looking for when they come into our town. And our church just can't offer the programs and the, the resources that a lot of bigger churches can. He said, so I'm not trying to reach the well-established families who love the Lord and are raising their kids right who are moving into my town. He says, but if I go out and I witness and I share the gospel to an alcoholic, a drunk on the street, and he comes into my church and he gets saved, he's going to bring his kids, he's going to bring his family to my church, regardless of any program. He doesn't care what we have here, because that's where he met Jesus. And so our foundation, our goal, shouldn't be to try to just bring more people into our church to increase our numbers and have a nice congregation, but our goal is to preach Christ and Him crucified for the salvation of sinners and the glory of God. 
But thinking not just of our church as a whole, your life as an individual, you are preaching a message with the way you live your life. What is that message? What does the message of your life convey? Everything you've done, if you looked at your calendar or, or everything you did for the last two weeks, everything you spent your money on, what message are you preaching with your life? That the goal of this world is to be comfortable? To make money and enjoy yourself? Friends, the message even of how we live our lives Monday to Saturday has to be Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The underlying message in every sermon given behind this pulpit, the message we send in the way we do ministry in this church, the sermon that you preach and the life that you live, all of this must point to one thing, rather one person, Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now, to those who are perishing, to those who don't know the Lord Jesus, who have not been born again, that message is foolishness. And Paul is pretty clear about that in 1 Corinthians 1. It is foolish to those who are perishing. He said to the Jews, it's a stumbling block. You know, in his day, you've got these Jews who have been looking for their Messiah to come, this conquering king, this ruler. He comes and Jesus proclaims and makes it clear that he is that Messiah. And then... He dies. That's a stumbling block. They can't believe that God would ever send them a Messiah who would die, who would be humiliated in the most cruel way. And to the Gentiles, they look on and say, your king came to die? That's foolish. Their gods are, are powerful people who sit on mountains and in the heavens and do whatever they please. And no man can do anything to harm them. But your God, you say, became a man and lived among you and let you put him to death? That's foolishness. Next week's Easter, the, the theme of our message is that Jesus Christ not only died for our sins, but that he rose from the dead. You know what the world says when we say that our, our God raised from the dead? It's foolish. People don't rise from the dead. So our message is foolishness to those who don't believe. And if you hear that message that Jesus died for your sins and that he rose from the dead and you say, I have a hard time believing that, you're probably not born again. But to those of us who are saved and for the people being saved right now across this country and around the world... This message is the very power of God. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It may be foolishness, but I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, to the Jews first and also to the Greeks. There's only one message that can change lives. We're in this broken world. We try to fix ourselves. We try to do everything we can to make ourselves more comfortable. But the only thing that can fix a person, the only, pers the only way that a person's soul can be saved, their sins forgiven, is through this message, this foolish message that God became a man, died for sins, and rose from the dead. The proclamation of Jesus' death and resurrection must be central. It must be central in the life of every Christian and in the ministry of every church. Now, how do we proclaim this message? This is the message we're called to proclaim. How do we do that? 
I have three things in an outline here that I'm going to give you. And uh, based on the way this is going so far, we may or may not get through them all. But the first thing is the obvious one. It's the words of our witness. The words of our witness. You see, the obligation to make disciples and to proclaim the gospel falls on every single Christian. All right, answer this question in your mind. Yes or no? You don't have to say it out loud. Are you a Christian? Have you been born again? You are required to tell others. One man called it the sin of silence when we don't tell others the message that we've heard about Jesus. Jesus told the apostles before he left, he said, All authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to do all things that I've commanded you. I'm with you always to the end of the world. And, and you may say, well, that was just for the apostles. He wanted them to go and to make disciples. Well, that's kind of messed up by the line, teach them to do everything I've commanded you. Because the very last thing he commanded them was to go and make disciples. So that command has been passed down and taught to every generation of Christians since. In Acts 1.8, he says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You can't separate the call to be God's witness from receiving the Holy Spirit. Again, answer this question in your head. Are you born again? Have you received the Holy Spirit? Then you are His witness. We have to make sure we understand the message that we're proclaiming. It, just flip to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. I just want to make sure we're clear on exactly what it is we are to proclaim. Because I can't tell you to go preach the gospel and not tell you what the gospel is. You've got to get it right. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, I'll just start with verse 1. He says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you're saved if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you unless you believed in vain. So here's the message. Verse 3, For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received. One, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures and that He was buried. And two, and that He was that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas and then by the twelve. So there's two main things here. And if you boil down the message of the gospel to these two main things, it's that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead. You've got to have both. You're only preaching half the message if you don't preach the resurrection. Jesus died for our sins and he rose from the dead. And with both of these things, he gives us some proof. He gives us some proof. He's, he says, Jesus died for our sins. And then he says, according to the scriptures. It was written beforehand that this would happen. And we can point back all throughout the Old Testament, all the different ways that it was foreshadowed and explicitly proclaimed that the Messiah to come would lay down his life for sinners. So we have that proof from the past, according to the scriptures. Well, what about a proof in the present? He was buried. How do we know Jesus died? Because he was buried. 
Now some people say, well, Jesus just passed out or he swooned or something and they carried him off and then later he got better and they just thought he rose from the dead. No, he died. They placed him in a tomb. They sealed the door with a stone. They placed a guard around him. There would have been plenty of eyewitnesses if he had just got up and walked out. Well, the disciples stole his body. No, they didn't do that. I mean, think about the guard that's at the door. Those disciples were no match. Jesus really died for our sins and was buried. And he rose from the dead. And the same pattern follows again, according to the scriptures. The Old Testament predicted it. See Isaiah 52 and 53. That's the death and the resurrection of Jesus. The scriptures predicted it, and we have proof that it happened. What's the proof? We saw him. We saw him. He says, he rose from the dead on the third day. According to the scriptures, he was seen by Cephas, that's Peter, and then by the twelve. And after that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. So if Paul had written, if Paul wrote this letter and some fact checker said, I'm going to look into this, I'm going to find out if he's really telling the truth, he could have gone to over 500 witnesses who were still alive that day who would have said, yes, we saw him with our own eyes. The message of the gospel is this, that Jesus died for our sins and that he rose from the dead. And we must call people to respond to that. Because listen, every single one of you have sinned. Would any of you disagree? And friend, you're not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you are by nature a sinner. You've inherited the nature of your father, Adam, who plunged humanity into sin. And you sin and you violate God's law. You rebel against him every single day of your life. But Jesus, God, who is rich in mercy for his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, made us alive together with Christ. How did he do that? Jesus died for our sins. The punishment that you and I deserve was placed on him. He died. He took our place. He was buried. And on the third day, he proved that he accomplished what he said he was going to do by rising from the dead. Now, when you put your faith in Jesus, you turn your life around. You say, I'm not going to keep walking towards sin and living for myself. I turn away from sin. I turn away from myself. And I'm going to follow Jesus. Only the Holy Spirit can work that in you. If you've not yet believed, friend, that's where you are. You have to repent and believe this good news. Believe this message and follow Jesus. That's the message we proclaim. That's the the words of our witness. Friend, you have an obligation to tell that message. And I'll just be honest with you. I've tried for a long time to try to find smooth transitions to get conversations from the, the natural to the spiritual. You know, to be having a conversation about mowing the grass and somehow get to the gospel. I'm just not very good at that. Some people are. Some people can take a conversation about anything and turn it just really smoothly to where Jesus is. Can I tell you just what I've been doing lately? I've just outright asked people, has anybody ever told you about Jesus? And nobody has hit me yet. And I would bet money on it, they won't hit you. And if they do, blessed are you who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. That's what Jesus said. It's, it, it seems so fearful. We get so nervous. Our tongue just gets tied into knots when it comes to it. But friend, that's really all it is. is sometimes just asking that first question. Has anybody ever told you what the Bible says about Jesus?
And even if they say yes, tell them anyway, because they might not get it right. You have an obligation, a duty to take this message, this free gift that was given to you so graciously and to pass it along to others. Someone said it once like this. The gospel came to you on its way to someone else. It did not stop with you. The gospel came to you on its way to someone else. Open your mouth, please, and tell the good news about Jesus. How can you keep silent? So this is the, the words of our witness. The second thing is the conduct of our lives. We, we preach Christ crucified by the way we live, you know. Flip to Romans 6, Romans 6, if you will. You see, Paul told the Corinthians, he said, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? A new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. If you've been born again, there has been a change in your life, in your direction. You're not going to be able to continue to persist in sin and not care. If you're continually living in a life of sin without repentance, hear me, listen. You are lost and you need to be born again. Because when you are born again, you are given a new life. It is a change. There is no in-between. There's no straddling the fence. You're either living for yourself or you're living for Jesus. If you're not living for Jesus, you are lost. Please hear me when I say that. But for those of us who have been saved, we proclaim the message of Christ by the way we conduct ourselves. How does that happen? How do we uh, become this new creation? Well, Paul tells us it's, it's through our being united with Christ at the moment we've been born again. When you were saved, listen, you may not know this. When you were born again, you were united with Jesus. You were baptized in the Holy Spirit and you've become one with him. He abides in you and you in him. In Romans 6 verse 5, he says, For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man, that old nature, the person we are before we knew Christ, was crucified with him. That the body of sin might be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. If you've been born again and you've been united with Christ, what's true of Jesus becomes true of you. Is Jesus a sinner? Come on somebody. Is Jesus a sinner? Are you a sinner? If you've been born again, in God's eyes... You're righteous. You're united with His Son. Oh, we're still in this body of flesh. We still commit sins. But you have, in God's eyes, been united with Christ in His death. When Jesus died on the cross, it was as if your old nature died too. And he who has died has been freed from sin. Go to verse 11. He says, Likewise, you also reckon yourselves, consider yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here's part of our problem when it comes to dealing with our sin. We don't believe the things that are true about us. 
You don't realize that you have been united, that you are dead to sin. It's not that you're trying to become dead to sin. Friend, if you're a Christian, you are dead to sin. Reckon yourselves. Listen, this is, this is my ammunition when I'm tempted to sin. When I'm tempted to sin, a thought comes into my mind or I start to do something that isn't right. The thing that comes, to, I start preaching to me, okay? And you can start preaching to you. And you say, no, I am dead to sin. I am alive to God. Sin has no hold on me. And you know how hard it is to continue in sin when you're telling yourself you're dead to sin and alive to God? Give it a try and let me know next week, okay? I mean it. Preach to yourself. You are dead to sin if you are in Christ. Verse 12, he says, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. You don't have to do that anymore. You don't owe your flesh anything. Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. It really is that simple. You've been born again. You've been freed from sin. Why would you turn and offer yourself back to sin? And you can't just say, okay, I'm not going to sin. I'm dead to sin. You have to follow through and replace it with that good news, right? I am alive to God. There is no neutral here. There's no not sinning but not being used by God. You say, I'm dead to sin. I'm not going that way. Instead, I'm going to present myself as useful to God. His instrument to be used for righteousness. This is how we proclaim Christ's death in our, the conduct of our lives. It has implications for how you live. You're dead to sin because Jesus died for sin. Jesus rose from the dead, therefore you have been raised to new life in Him, if you've been saved. Let's do the third thing, but we'll move rather quickly through it. The third is the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. The ordinances... Baptism is part of the, the Great Commission. Matthew 28, again, he said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The word baptize is, in English is really just a made-up word. Uh, the Greek word is baptizo, and, and they didn't want to just translate it for what it means, which means to immerse or to dip. And they just said baptize. It literally means to, to immerse people, and that's why when we baptize people here, we take them all the way under. Um, I don't think there's any question that Jesus was talking about literal water baptism in the Great Commission because whenever the, the apostles went out and began to preach and people began to be saved, that's exactly what they did. Those who believed, they, they baptized. Acts 2, after Peter preached there at Pentecost, he says, Then those who gladly received his word, that is, those who were saved, who believed the gospel, were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. That was the progression of things. They believed the word of God, they were baptized, and they were added to the fellowship of the church. And so that's, why, why is that important? That is one way we proclaim Christ's death. And let me just be clear on this. It's not important because it's efficacious in any way. And I mean by that, that, that baptism in no way contributes to your salvation. 
If you've been born again by faith in Jesus alone, then you're born again. You're a Christian. So it doesn't add anything in any way. And, and the only reason really I bring that up is because sometimes I ask people, you know, well, tell me about when you became a Christian. And they say, oh, well, I was baptized when I was such and such years old or such and such a preacher baptized me. That's the wrong answer. That's not when you became a Christian. The only way to be born again, to become a Christian, is to put your faith in Jesus. Your trust in Him alone. But it is important, baptism is important because it proclaims the death and resurrection of Christ and our identification with Him in His death and resurrection. You're still in Romans 6, I hope. Just back up a few verses to, to 1 through 4 there. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Verse 3, do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So in this spiritual sense, when you were, you were born again, you were baptized by the Holy Spirit into Christ. That's a spiritual baptism. He died for sin, so now we're dead to sin. He rose from the dead, so now we've been raised to new life in Him. And so baptism in water is this outward symbol of what God has already done in the heart of the one who has been born again. The baptism of the believer by immersion proclaims Christ. That's why when we baptize, usually we say something like this as we do it. The person goes down and we say, as we are buried in the likeness of his death, and then as we pull him out of the water, we say, so are we raised in the glorious beauty of his resurrection. Because that's what we're portraying when we go into the water. If you've been born again and you're serious about following Jesus, you need to proclaim Christ by being baptized. May God give us many more new believers to baptize. Would you pray for that? But Jesus gave the church a second ordinance. He gave us the, the Lord's Supper. We call it communion. Here's what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11. He said, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take Eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you what? You proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. And so whenever we take that bread, that, that little bread or cracker or whatever it is we happen to be using that time, and you put it in your mouth, and the force of your jaw clamps that bread between your teeth, and the force of your teeth crush it in your mouth, you're to remember the Lord Jesus who was crushed for you. It pleased the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And then when we drink from the cup, we remember 
the blood that he shed for us. And so even in taking part in this meal, in this this bread and this cup, we are proclaiming the Lord's death. We're, we're preaching the gospel to ourselves and reminding ourselves of what Jesus has done for us. We're, we're proclaiming it to the people around us, maybe who don't participate because they haven't been born again. That we're separate from them in that way, that we are united with Christ in his death and they are not. They're still living in sin. These are just three ways that I see that we proclaim Christ crucified. This is how we preach Christ crucified. And I don't want to be clear about something. It isn't multiple choice. You can't come in and be baptized and take communion and say, well, I'm good. I don't have to open my mouth and share the gospel. and I don't have to conduct myself in any certain way. Or you can't say, well, I'll try to live a good life before my neighbors and before my family, but I don't think I have to really say anything to them. Or on the opposite side of that, you can't be out saying things and preaching the gospel and living a sinful life that contradicts. You see, these, these aren't choices for us to make. These are requirements that God has said and commands that he's given across the board. All of us who have been born again need to be witnessing with our words Conducting ourselves in our lives in a way that proclaims Christ and participating in the ordinances that God's give us in the church. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. And in these ways, we proclaim Christ. It seems foolish. It doesn't make sense to the world. But to us who are saved, it is the power of God. It is the power of God. We're going to observe one ordinance today of the Lord's Supper. But before we do, I think we need to pray. Because I'm sure that in talking about these things, that we're not measuring up in every area, in every category. It may be that it's been a long time since you've opened your mouth to tell someone about Jesus. I know we don't feel this way, but it's a sin. It's disobedience. We need to repent. Maybe the conduct of your life is not one that honors Christ and proclaims Him as your Lord who was crucified. And there's some sin that the Lord has brought to your mind that you need to repent of. You need to do it. If you haven't taken part in the the ordinances... Most of that stuff's pretty easy, let's be honest. We're in a group of people who all agree about it. That we should be baptized and take the Lord's Supper. But maybe you haven't done it with the right spirit, with the right attitude. We need to pray about this. And so I have to ask this too. Have you believed the gospel at all? This is directed towards Christians, what I've been talking about this morning, these requirements that God has placed on us. But friends, if if you're lost, if you haven't been born again, God's only requirement for you is that you repent and believe the gospel. That you turn away from your way of living now for yourself and for your sin, and you turn to Jesus and you follow him. So I'm going to pray now. And as I pray, you pray. Whatever it is the Lord's brought to your mind, you deal with it with him now. And then after we pray, the deacons will come and 
and serve the Lord's Supper. Father, we're humbled by your word. We desire to proclaim Christ. You saved us when we were lost and dead in our sins. And we want to preach Christ crucified. Lord, I pray that those of us who have been silent have held back from telling others the good news about Jesus would repent of that sin and go out of here this week looking for that opportunity to obey. I pray for those among us who profess to be born again, but their lives don't add up. Their lives don't line up with that claim. Lord, I pray that those who belong to you would realize that they are dead to sin and alive to God. And I pray that they would reckon themselves dead to sin this morning and be free of it. Lord, as we come to take the Lord's Supper, may we take it in a worthy manner. Having confessed our sins, and in faith believing that our hearts are right with you, may we take it and remember Jesus our Lord. And God, I pray that as we proclaim Christ, as we preach Christ, that you would give us fruit, that you would save souls here, that you would give us many new believers to baptize and to welcome into this fellowship. In Jesus' name, amen.